Chapter 40 of Haworths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mia. Haworths by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Look out. The next morning, French rather surprised Murdoch by walking into his cell with an evident intention of paying him a somewhat prolonged visit. It was not, however, the fact of his appearing there which was unusual enough to excite wonder, but a certain degree of mingled constraint and effusiveness in his manner. It was as if he was troubled with some mental compunctions which he was desirous of setting at rest. At times he talked very fast and in a comparatively light and jocular vein, and again he was silent for some minutes, invariably rousing himself from his abstraction with sudden effort. Several times Murdoch found that he was regarding him with a disturbed air of anxiety. Before going away, he made an erratic and indecisive tour of the little room, glancing at drawings and picking up first one thing and then another. "'You've a good many things here,' he said, of one kind and another. "'Yes,' Murdoch answered absently. French glanced around at the jumble of mechanical odds and ends, the plans and models in various stages of neglect or completion. "'It's a queer place,' he commented, "'and it has an air of significance. It's crammed with ideas, of one kind and another.' Yes, Murdoch answered as before. French approached him and laid his hand weakly on his shoulder. You are a fellow of ideas, he said, and you have a good deal before you. Whatever disappointments you might meet with, you would always have a great deal before you. You have ideas. I, with apparent inconsequence, I haven't, you know. Murdoch looked somewhat puzzled, but he did not contradict him, so he repeated his statement. I haven't, you know. I wish I had and he dropped his hand and looked indefinite again. "'I should like you to always remember that I am your friend,' he said. "'I wish I could have been of more service to you. "'You're a fine fellow, Murdoch. "'I've admired you. "'I've liked you. "'Don't forget it.' And he went away, carrying the burden of his indecision and embarrassment and good intention with such amiable awkwardness. That day, Murdoch did not see Rachel French. Circumstances occurred which kept him at work until a late hour. The next day it was the same story, and the next also. A series of incidents seemed to combine against him, and at the end of each day found him worn out and fretted. But on the fourth he was free again, and early in the evening found himself within sight of the iron gates. Every pulse in his body throbbed as he passed through them. He was full of intense expectation. He could scarcely bear to think what was before him. His desperate happiness was a kind of pain. One of his chief longings was that he might find her wearing the pale blue dress again, and that when he entered she might be standing in the center of the room as he had left her. Then it would seem as if there had been no nights and days between the last terribly happy moment and this. The thought which flashed across his mind that there might possibly be someone else in the room was a shock to him. If she's not alone, he said to himself, it will be unbearable. As he passed up the walk, he came upon a tall white lily blooming on one of the border beds. He was in a sufficiently mystical and emotional mood to be stopped by it. It is like her, he said, and he gathered it and took it with him to the house. The first thing upon which his eye rested when he stood upon the threshold of the room was the pale blue color, and she was standing just as he had left her. It seemed to him upon the very same spot upon which they had parted. His wish had been realized so far at least. He was obliged to pause a moment to regain his self-control. It was an actual truth that he could not have trusted himself so far as to go in at once. It was best that he did not. 
The next instant, she turned and spoke to a third person on the other side of the room, and even as she did so, caught sight of him and stopped. "'Here's Mr. Murdoch,' she said, and paused, waiting for him to come forward. She did not advance to meet him, did not stir until he was scarcely more than a pace from her. She simply waited, watching him as he moved toward her, as if she were a little curious to see what he would do. Then she gave him her hand, and he took it with a feeling that something unnatural had happened, or that he was suddenly awakening from a delusion. He did not even speak. It was she who spoke, turning toward the person whom she addressed before he entered. "'You've heard us speak of Mr. Murdoch,' she said, and then to himself, "'This is Monsieur Saint-Marin.' Monsieur Saint-Marin rose and bowed profoundly. He presented, as his best points, long, graceful limbs and a pair of clear gray eyes, which seemed to hold their opinions in check. He regarded Murdoch with an expression of suave interest and made a well-bred speech of greeting. Murdoch said nothing. He could think of nothing to say. He was never very ready of speech. He bowed with an uncertain air and almost immediately wandered off to the other end of the room, holding his lily in his hand. He began to turn over the pages of a book of engravings, seeing none of them. After a little while, a peculiar perfume close to him attracted his attention, and he looked downwardly vacantly and saw the lily, and then he laid it down and moved farther away. Afterward, he did not know how long afterward, French came in. He seemed in a very feverish state of mind, talking a great deal and rather inanely, and forcing Murdoch to reply and join in on the conversation. Monsieur Saint-Marin held himself with a graceful air of security and self-poise and made gentle efforts at scientific remark, which should also have an interest for genius of a mechanical and inventive turn. But Murdoch's replies were vague. His glance followed Rachel French. He devoured her with his eyes, a violence which she bore very well. At last, he had not been in the house an hour. He left his chair and went to her. "'I'm going away,' he said in an undertone. "'Good night.' She did not seem to hear him. She was speaking to Saint-Marin. "'Good night,' he repeated, in the same tone, not raising it at all, only giving it an intense, concentrated sound. She turned her face toward him. "'Good night,' she answered. As he went away, French followed him to the door with erratic and profuse regret, which he did not hear at all. When he got outside, he struck out across the country. The strength with which he held himself in check was a wonder to him. It seemed as if he was not thinking at all, that he did not allow himself to think. He walked fast, it might even be said violently. The exertion made his head throb and his blood rush through his veins. He walked until at last his heart beat so suffocatingly that he was forced to stop. He threw himself down, almost fell down upon the grass at the wayside, and laid with shut eyes. He was giddy and exhausted and panted for breath. He could not have thought then, if he would, he had gained so much at least. He did not leave the place for an hour. When he did so, it was to walk home by another route, slowly and almost weakly. This route led him by the Brerley cottage, and as he neared it, he was seized with a fancy for going in. The door was ajar, and light burned in the living room, and this drew him toward it. Upon the table stood a basket filled with purchases, and near the basket lay a shawl which Janie wore upon all occasions requiring a toilet. She had just come in from her shopping, and sat on a stool in her usual posture, not having yet removed the large bonnet which spread its brim around her small face, a respectable and steady-going oriole enlivened with bunches of flowers which in their better days had rejoiced, Mrs. Brerley's heart with exceeding great joy. She looked up as he came in, but she did not rise. "'Eh, it's thee, is it?' she remarked. "'I thought it were time that you were coming. The snot been here for nigh a month. 
I have been doing a great deal. I, she answered, I suppose so. She jerked her thumb toward Granny Dixon's basket chair, which stood empty. She's taken down, she said. She were taken down a week sin, and a nice time we're having nursing her. None of us can do anything with her but mother. She can settle her, thank the Almighty. She rested her sharp little elbows upon her knees and her chin upon both palms and surveyed him with interest. Has the seed him? she demanded suddenly. Who? he asked. Him with a nod of her head. The foreigner, as it's staying at Mr. French's. You must have seen him. He's been there three days. I saw him this evening. I thought that I might have seen him. He come in on Monday. He come from France. I should know, with a tone of serious speculation. I should not have thought she'd had a Frenchman. She moved her feet and settled herself more conveniently without moving her eyes from his face. I do not think much of Frenchmen myself, she proceeded, and neither does mother, but they say this is a rich man and a grand one. She's lived in France a good bit, and happens she does not mind their ways. She's known him before. When, he asked. When she were there. She lived there, you know. Yes, he remembered. She had lived there. He said nothing more, only sat watching the little stunted figure and sharp small face with a sense of mild fascination, wondering dully how much she knew and where she had learned it all and what she would say next. But she gave him no further information, chiefly because she had no more on hand, there being a limit even to her sagacity. She became suddenly interested in himself. You are as pale as you'd have the whooping cough, she remarked. What's wrong with you? I'm tired, he answered, worn out. That was true enough, but it did not satisfy her. A matter-of-fact matronly mind arrived at a direct solution of the question. Did you ever think she put it to him as she had you? He had no answer to give her. He began to turn deathly white about the lips. She surveyed him with increased interest and proceeded. Mother and me's talked it over, she said. He talked the halfpenny reader, and there were a tale in it as to the one the nobility as what a workin' chap. And mother, she said, has happened, she were like her and do it. But I said she would not. The chap in the tale turned out to be an earl, and had been kidnapped by the gypsies, but you never were kidnapped, and she's none of the soft kind. The Lady Geraldine were a different make. There were not much in her to my mind. She were always making out a brass were not, and talking about a humble virtue, as if there were not like it. You would not catch her taking that road. Mother, she'd sit and cry until the baby's bishop were wet through, but I never sit down to cry about myself. She's gotten the chap in the end, and he turned out to be an earl after all, but I told mother, as marrying a working man, were not in her line. Murdoch burst into a harsh laugh and got up. I've been pretty well talked over, it seems, he said. I didn't know that before. I replied Jane coolly. You've talked you over a good bit. Are you going? Yes, he answered. I am going. He went out with an uncertain movement, leaving the door open behind him. As he descended the steps, light from the room, slanting out into the darkness, struck athwart a face, the body pertaining to which seemed to be leaning against the palings, grasping them with both hands. It was the face of Mr. Brerley, who regarded him with a mingled expression of anxiety and a desire to appropriate. Is it you? he whispered as Murdoch neared him. Yes, he was answered, somewhat shortly. Mr. Barley put out a hand and plucked him by the sleeve. I've been waiting for you, he said in a sonorous whisper which only failed to penetrate the innermost recesses of the dwelling through some miracle. Murdoch turned out of the gate. Why? he asked. 
Mr. Brayley glanced toward the house uneasily and also up and down the road. Let's get out of the way a bit, he remarked. Murdoch walked on and he shuffled a few paces behind him. When they got well into the shadow of the hedge, he stopped. Suddenly he dropped upon his knees and crawling through a very small gap into the field behind, remained there for a few seconds, then he reappeared panting. There's no one there, he said. I wouldn't have risked there being one of them lying under the hedge. One of whom? Murdoch inquired. I did not say who, he answered. When he stood on his feet again, he took his companion by the button. There's a friend of mine, he said, and he sent a message to you. This, here's it. Look out. What does it mean? Murdoch asked. Speak more plainly. Mr. Brayley became evidently disturbed. Nay, he said, that there's plain enough for me. It's a do my business. In quick time, if I... He stopped and glanced about him again, and then without warning threw himself, so to speak, on Murdoch's shoulder and began to pour a flood of whispers into his ear. They were a chap, as were a foo, he said, and he was drawn into being a bigger fool than common. It were him as getting you in trouble with the strikers. He did not mean no ill, and, and, he says, I tell him to look out. I'll run the risk. He knowed what were going on, and he says, I'll tell him to look out. Who is he? Murdoch interposed. Mr. Brayley fell back a pace, perspiling profusely and dabbing at his forehead with his cap. He were a friend of mine, he stammered, a friend of mine as has gotten a way of getting himself into trouble, and he says, I'll tell him to look out. Tell him for me, said Murdoch, that I'm not afraid of anything that may happen. It was a rash speech, but it was not so defiant as it sounded. His only feeling was one of cold carelessness. He wanted to get free and go away and end his night in the silent room at home, but Mr. Rarely kept up with him, edging toward him apologetically as he walked. You're set again the chap for being a fool, he persisted breathlessly, and I don't blame you. He's set again, his son. He's a misfortunate chap, as is all is in trouble. It's set heavy on him, and says he, I'll tell him to look out. At a turn into a by-lane, he stopped. I'll go this road, he said, and I'll tell him as I've done it. End of chapter 40 Recording by Mia